It is a joy to be here this morning. I have known of Colonial for years and years and years. Um, have a lot of friends that have been here, students that have come from here. Um, Pastor Davey, I most recently heard when he came in was our baccalaureate speaker at Bob Jones, but I remembered him from years before. Do you remember way back in the days of the Great Lakes Sunday School Conference? You came and keynoted that at First Baptist Church of Troy years ago. It was one of the very first times I heard you preach, and um, I, I was blessed by that and have been since that time with your ministry. I've known Pastor Brent uh, remotely over the years just because of so many friends in common, and then most recently he and I were part of a pastor's team's prayer meeting uh, during COVID and all of those wonderful things. Um, Jim Newcomer and I have been friends forever. And then do any of you remember the Carlisles? Anybody remember that name? Yeah, he and I were friends from Michigan, and actually I stayed in his home, supported him when they were uh, in Cambodia, are in Cambodia, and so lots of connections. So it is a joy for me to be here uh, for the first time. Um, I do have some stuff to give away. I recently was walking to a ball game, and I didn't even realize it, but we are the Bruins, and I had a Bruins hat on, and a Bruins shirt on, and Bruins socks on, and a student walked up to me and said, dude, I like your drip. And I, I had to look and see, like, what, what, like, what am I doing? Well, apparently, logo stuff is drip. So, I have drip to give away um, at that meeting afterward, and so would love to have, if you have teenagers of any age, if you don't have teenagers of any age, if you're an alumni, um, I would love to meet with you and um, give you a hat or socks or a t-shirt. I brought them all. I stopped at Wawa this morning. Wawa has some of my favorite coffee, and... um, They don't have it in South Carolina. So when I was driving from the airport and I saw Wawa, I thought, I'm getting Wawa coffee in the morning. Uh, And I did. And I walked up to the counter and the lady at the counter looked at me and she said, are you going to church? I said, why, yes, I am. She said, you're speaking, aren't you? I said, well, yes, I am. She said, and look at your smile. God's going to make you shine today. So get ready. I don't know what that means, but... (laughs) I actually got in my car, called my wife, shared that with her, and I said, you know what I want you to do? I want you to pray because I don't want God to make me shine today. I want to make Jesus shine. And so take your Bibles and turn with me, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. Peter's writing to an audience that is facing... I guess a good word would be cataclysmic cultural events. The people that they have put confidence and trust in are facing persecution. They are facing persecution. Leaders being put to death for the faith. And Peter is writing them in 1 Peter to exhort believers to conduct themselves properly, in particular among the community of believers. You see that in chapter 3 and verse 8. And then in the opening section, chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. But then in particular, especially in a non-Christian society, and you see that chapter 2 and verse 12, that they would clearly testify to their hope in Christ for God's glory. And so he is writing to help believers theologically comprehend the difficulties that they are facing in light of the goodness of God. I think that's a fitting subject matter for us today. I wrote my dissertation 
on an interesting subject to me anyway. The title was very simple, Helping Gen Z Students in a Christian College Choose Church. And you say, wow, like, is that a tough thing? You would be surprised. Those years, ages 18 to 21, 22, roughly, psychologists today refer to as the incubator years. And they are the first four years now of a new time period in people's lives. From 18 to 28 is actually a time period that's known as emerging adulthood. So if you're here and you're 27, sad to say you're not yet an adult. You're still emerging. Like, I don't even know where that came from. Does anybody here remember when we didn't have teenagers? Anybody remember that? They, oh, they, we had them, but we didn't refer to them that way. Now, emerging adulthood. In the incubator years, even secular psychology is saying these are years that people must, and here's the word they use, internalize. That something has to be internalized in order for it to be manifest in their lives. And if they don't internalize during the incubator years, they will go through a 10-year gap before they internalize again. Do you realize that so many young people, if they don't internalize their own morality, they don't internalize the importance of the means of grace, the scriptures and prayer, and I believe the body of Christ and church, that they may graduate even from a Christian university and spend 10 years before committing. Think about that. Think about how many of our young people would graduate, get married, have their first child, get their first job, go through colossal life change, and do it without the community of faith. I think that's a tragedy. So that's really why I wrote on that. What do we do during the college years, even at a Christian college, to make sure that we don't just say, look, we've picked good churches, you pick one, find a kid with a car, decide what kind of pizza you like after church, and ride back and forth to church with him because you have to go to church. I think a lot of good kids can do that and not internalize the importance of church. So how do we approach that? I hope you're sitting here this morning and you've internalized the importance of the community of faith. Peter's going to emphasize that some. Part of the reason it's important is because we are living in days of cataclysmic cultural change. We're experiencing the impacts of a seismic cultural shift. You see, our Western world is making the tangible move from a culture based in the historic Judeo-Christian ethic to one that is based in the secular humanistic ethical norm. We have moved in recent days from measurements that indicate that we have gone from a pre-pagan society to a full-blown pagan society. A study I read two weeks ago actually lays out a timeline that in 2049, in the United States of America, Christianity will no longer be the majority religion. In light of that, Hinduism, Buddhism, and Islam only make up 6% of the culture. And it's not going to be one of them that will be the predominant religion. 2049, it's estimated the predominant religion in the United States of America will be what is now being referred to as the nuns. N-O-N-E-S. And the reason for that is they will claim that their ethical approach to life is not based in any religious system. And so we are seeing a culture shift from morality to pragmatism, from absolutes to relativism, from morality matters to the ends, justifies the means. And 
It is interesting that I believe this is exactly the culture that John writes of when he desperately pleads with believers not to love this culture when he says, love not the world. Neither the things that are in the world, for if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And he says this, and the world passeth away. Literally, the world is in a downward spiral of decay. It is getting worse and worse. Exactly what Paul emphasizes when he describes that same system in Romans 1. In light of that, This particular cultural expression has some really interesting ethical premises that it functions by. Here's one of them. The deifying of transparency. The deifying of transparency. I think it's good to be transparent. I think it's great to be honest. We should be. But this is what it looks like in this culture. I can justify saying anything as long as I say I'm just being honest. I can rationalize doing anything as long as I can say, I'm just being real. Couple that with a second premise, this, the moralizing of affirmation. I can demand, I can expect acceptance as long as I have been transparent. No matter what I told you, as long as I've been transparent, I can demand acceptance from you. In fact, it is immoral for you if I have been transparent for you somehow to not accept me or accept what I've shared with you. Coupled with that, then I can reject any correction because I hold the moral high ground of transparency. Then there's a third expression, and it's this, the rationalizing of compartmentalization. It's a good thing for the sake of being relatable to pretend to be something I'm not. So let me give you a shocking statement and then I'll explain it, okay? You can say, man, that guy from Bob Jones said this and okay. So listen carefully. God is not interested in your spiritual life. Let me say it again. God is not interested in your spiritual life. God is interested in your real life. And he wants it to be spiritual. So you say, why would you say that? Because we're living with a generation that, because of this transparency, has found a way to compartmentalize. And so they'll talk over here about this guy and his sin issues, his pride, his ego. And I'll share with a group, and the group will embrace me because of my transparency. And all the while, I'm now beginning to feel better about myself. But this guy over here, the real guy, is actually immoral. And has no intention to change. So I compartmentalize and this guy over here is willing to be uh, transparent and share all about his life. But not really deal with his real life. Friends, God is not interested in your spiritual life. God is interested in your real life. And he intends for it to be spiritual. This is the world in which we find ourselves being stewards of the gospel. And because that's the world that we live in, I believe that what Peter writes about in 1 Peter chapter 5 is consequential for us in stewarding the gospel in a world like this. You'll find some of these verses very familiar. I'm going to begin 1 Peter chapter 5. 
I'm not going to bother with PowerPoint. The outline's simple. 1 Peter chapter 5. Verse 5 says this, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This passage of scripture has some very well-known verses in it. What I want you to see is as we look at this passage of scripture, it is somewhat chiastic. That means it's a literary device. It's actually used to help emphasize a central point. And so you have on the outside parallel truths that match each other as you move to the middle. And then there's a central point that actually is what the author is emphasizing because it affects everything else. As we look at this passage of Scripture, I'd like you to think in terms of an athletic competition or a battlefield. And really our points are going to be very simple. I want you to see that there are two combatants on one battlefield. And as we do that, I think Peter is writing to call uh, his audience in particular to an understanding of what it is that God is doing in their lives in the midst of the circumstances of life. He says this at the second half of verse 9, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. That, I believe, is the central idea. And thus this word knowing actually is the idea of not just understanding something, but a recognition of something. There is something that we must give proper recognition to if we are going to see how God is at work in our lives in the middle of a world like this. The title of my message is The Recognitions That Are Necessary for Sanctification. And the points are simple. We must recognize that we have an adversary. We must recognize the circumstances of life. And we must recognize our God. Three very simple points. And so let's look at them together. First of all, I want us to see that we must recognize that we have an adversary. You say, I know that. I know. I've read my Bible. I know all about Satan. Understand, I'm not today going to try to give us a theological understanding of demonology or even of Satan himself. I really want to stay in this text. And I want to see why it is Peter speaks about our adversary the way he speaks about him in this passage of Scripture. So recognize that you have an adversary. First Peter chapter 5 and verse 8. A verse that we're very familiar with. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. First of all, I think we need to have this recognition. We must know who he is. We must know who he is. And I think Peter helps us to do that in a couple of ways. Peter identifies his character. You know, I think when we talk about our adversary, when we talk about Satan, there are two, I think, problems uh, with believers in that regard. The first would be this, we make more of him than he deserves. But secondly, I think the problem is that we make less of him than we should. And I don't want to fall into either of those traps today. 
Peter actually, in this passage, recognizes that we have an adversary and identifies his character. And the first way he identifies it is this. He is identified by his animosity, your adversary. He literally identifies him as an antagonist, an opponent, one whose primary purpose is to come against One who is counterproductive, destructive. His intention is to disable, bent against as an opponent. Friends, you have an adversary. I wish I could tell you today that you have the privilege of living your spiritual life and pursuing God in a vacuum. But you don't. There is somebody that is hell-bent, literally, against you being like Jesus. He is an antagonist. He is constantly disrupting, causing temptation. He is looking to destroy. But I think that Peter goes a step further and helps us see what this animosity might look like when he says, your adversary, the devil. He uses this word diabolos, meaning not just an antagonist, but an accuser, slanderous, falsely accusing. You see, our enemy is a disruptor. I almost hate to use the word. I ended up being the head of the COVID task force at Bob Jones University, trying to keep a college campus open during COVID. I still have a little PTSD from that. (laughs) We're living in a post-COVID world. I wish I could say to you, COVID was over. It may be in its physical expressions, friends. But it is actually just ramping up in its cultural expressions. It is seismic. What happened during COVID to our Western world? Something that we're not used to. I describe it this way. We all experienced for the first time a time period of hyper-isolation. We were dealing with college campus stuff and looking for things to do with the kids. So I ended up taking about 15 college kids and going one night to a park. We were playing pickleball. I was glad they were humoring the old guy. It was about five till nine and a police car pulled up to the pickleball courts. A loudspeaker came on and the police officer said, these courts will be closed at nine o'clock and I am serious. If you are on these courts at one minute after nine o'clock, I will be issuing citations. And I thought, here I am with about 15 Christian college students And we're going to get arrested for playing pickleball. Are there no drug dealers around? (laughs) And we had to leave and we had to go home and they closed those courts. We couldn't go. We experienced a time period of hyper-isolation like we've never experienced. We're not used to that in our Western world. Interestingly, during that time period, we also experienced something else. Hyper-isolation coupled with hyper-information. We all got online. We all got on TV. 98% of the U.S. population became lay medical doctors. Like everybody knew exactly what was going on with COVID. And then it ended and we all came back together. And you know what we're experiencing today in our culture? And if we're not careful, even in our churches? Hyper-isolation coupled with hyper-information that's now led us to hyper-polarization. Why? Because everybody has a firmly held opinion that they're dying to share. This is what our world looks like. And in the midst of that, we have an adversary who is an accuser. 
You know how many students I deal with that they come back to campus even now, and as I get to reach their heart, they begin to talk about what actually happened at home when we did have time together? Dad now working remote, and he's working in the house, and the antagonism that began to grow. And you know what our accuser has been doing? He has been accusing husbands to wives. He's been accusing wives to husbands. He's been accusing parents to children. He's been accusing children to parents. He's been accusing brother to brother and, and, and sister to sister. He's been accusing church members to pastors and vice versa. And friends, he is actually causing disruption in the body of Christ. Frankly, over issues that in light of eternity really don't matter. You know, it's interesting then when we look at him, he is secondly identified by his activity. And I want you to see that he describes him in a unique way here. He describes him as a roaring lion, a roaring lion. I've read this many times and actually never thought of why a roaring lion. Does anybody know why lions roar? I I thought I did. I've seen Simba. (laughs) And I assumed lions roar because they get to a really high hill and announce to everybody, I'm king of the world. Like that's what I thought. Well, that's not why lions roar. So next I assumed lions roar because they now have killed something and they've conquered and they want to announce to everybody, look at me, I'm a great victor. No, they don't. When lions kill, they eat. They don't roar. So I did some studying, and best I can find, lions actually are older lions, and they roar because they will go strategically position themselves while the hunters hunt, and they roar so that they direct the panicked herd toward the hunters. If you will, the older lions roar as terrorists. We have an adversary who is a roaring lion, and friends, I am telling you, he is roaring loudly into our culture. And he's interjecting it with fear and terror. Interestingly, as you study fear, one of the things you will find that a primary expression of fear, what what do you think a primary expression of fear is? I thought it was to cower. And initially that is. But actually it is not flight, it is fight. The physiological response to fear eventually is adrenaline. And you know what I found, friends? I have found that we are living in an angry culture. I travel week in and week out. I try and be in as many churches as I can to find out what God is doing in His church. It's good for my soul. But as I travel this country, friends, you know what I'm finding? I'm finding that in this Western culture, we are living with an angry church. There are believers all over the place that are angry, and they're actually not quite sure why, but they're shaken with fear. Could this happen again? Could I lose my job? Will I have to relocate? Could there be another pandemic? What is going on politically? Is there trouble everywhere? And they live in fear, and because of that, they're angry. So I ask you this question. If that's what's going on in your life, who are you listening to? Is this roar, lion roaring loudly in your ears, and it's actually controlling your heart? You see, Peter says, we have an adversary who's a roaring lion, and then notice how he tells us to respond to him. Simple truths, and yet they're ones that I think ought to grip our hearts. Notice the response. He says in verse 8, that we are to resist him, but to do it in a way that, that is interesting. 
He calls us to, in a sense, wake up, be sober-minded, be watchful. Verse 9, resist him. And so some simple truths. First of all, be awake. The word is to be well-balanced, self-controlled, sober-minded, to be composed in mind. It is to get self-control, to curb the controlling influence of inordinate emotions or desires, and therefore to become reasonable. Friends, you know what we must do? We must inform our minds with the truth of God about the person of God in order to view the world God has made the way God sees it. Be sober-minded, to wake up. So be awake, but then secondly, he says to be alert, to beware, to be on one's guard, to be cautious or wary about, to be alert to something. We must realize what's going on around us. Ever noticed that what we call news is mostly all bad news? Anybody ever notice that? Like there's about three minutes of good news that comes just before a commercial break. Oh, by the way, so-and-so had a birthday party somewhere. And the rest of it's all bad news. Why? Because bad news sells. You know what? We have to be aware. And if I feel my heart becoming gripped with fear and I look at my life and I see my responses reflecting anger, it is time for me to saturate my soul with the truth of God's Word. I am not hearing the right message. Be aware. But then I notice, thirdly, he says to be aggressive. Whom resist steadfast in your faith. This doesn't mean that you walk outside and say, bring it, Satan, let's go, come on. It actually is to resist in your faith. And I believe the implication here is not just your personal belief. He's not saying pull up your belief bootstraps. He's actually talking about the faith once for all delivered to the saints, as Jude describes it. And what he is saying is you resist Satan with God's truth. So I ask you again the question, who are you listening to? Who are you listening to? We must recognize that we have an adversary, but then secondly, we must recognize your life's circumstances. We must recognize your life's circumstances. Notice this verse, verse 9. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. To be cognizant of or aware of, to come to a place where you have an understanding of what is going on in your world and then in the lives of other believers. He uses this word here to describe your brethren that are in the world. It literally is a description of all of the believers that are in the world. Something is taking place in their lives. And he uses a profound expression here. He uses this word experienced. And the idea there is to be accomplished, to be successfully completed or put into effect, to finish something begun, to bring about a result according to a plan or objective, that there is something that is happening among your brethren in the world, and it is happening in the midst of the circumstances of life. Something is being brought to completion. God is at work in your life. God is at work in our world, and He is using the circumstances of life to accomplish bringing about Christ-likeness in the lives of His children. So as we think about the circumstances of life, I think we have, first of all, to acknowledge what they are. 
How many of you have heard parents tell stories about walking uphill to school both ways? In the snow, and it gets worse and worse, right? The older they get, the worse it was back then, particularly in light of your complaints. That's what we do. Notice, friends, the Scriptures in particular, but Peter here directly, he never makes light of the circumstances of life. He uses the word afflictions. He's not making light of what they're facing. He's not saying, ah, get over it. Heaven's going to be so good. No, he's actually acknowledging that life is hard. There is suffering in life. Life is difficult. The circumstances of life are real and they're difficult. He's not making light of that. But what I want you to see is not just what they are, but why they are what they are. God is at work in the midst of the circumstances of life to bring about a good end in the lives of his children. Paul wrote it this way in Romans 8, didn't he? All things work together for good to them that love God and to those who are the called according to his purpose. If all things were good, do you think he'd even write that under inspiration? No, at the end of that chapter, he talks about what is not able to pluck me out of Christ's hand. And none of it is friendly, friends. He is saying God is using all of these things to bring about a salvation good in the lives of his people. That is what we call sanctification. Friends, God is at work on this same battlefield where there's a prowling, roaring lion seeking to devour. He's at work in those same circumstances to accomplish his purpose of making you and me like Jesus. So I asked you again, who are you listening to? Because God's not waiting in heaven just to change your circumstances. He is actually looking to change you. And in the midst of those difficulties in life, He has a perfect plan to make you more like Jesus, to refine your gold, to remove the dross, to deepen your faith, to strengthen your patience, to give you a persevering quality in your belief. This is what God is doing in your circumstances. But are you listening to Him? And so that brings me thirdly then to the latter part of this chapter. And I want us to see that not just must we recognize that we have an adversary, not must, must we just recognize that we are facing life circumstances and what they are. I want us to finish with this thought. We must recognize our God. Peter calls these people to a God consciousness. A recognition that in the circumstances of life, God is at work in my life every day. And he finishes with a doxology that harkens back to the beginning of the passage. Notice he says at the beginning, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. And at the end of it in verse 10 he says, and after you have suffered a little while, I love that. Because actually what he's doing is capturing all of life. Life is a little while. The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. He wants us to recognize our God and he points out some key things about God that we must keep actively in our mind if we are to grow in a world like this. First of all, he calls our attention to his immense power. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. You know, we look at a world like this, and it feels like the church may be losing. 
It feels like the gospel may be waning. But friends, I want to remind you that God is still on the throne and that Jesus promised that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And we are to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. He calls our attention to his immense power and he reminds us that no matter what we're facing, God can. Do you believe God can? No matter who gets elected? God can. I want you at some point when you're struggling with fear to go back through your Bible and read there not looking for what God did but looking for God Himself. And remind yourself in your heart of hearts that God can. You see, my God can knock down walls. My God can stop rivers. My God can pause the sun. My God can open a sea. My God can. Your God can. But not just can he. Notice, secondly, not just his immense power, but notice his immeasurable grace. Notice what he says. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of how much grace? All grace, immeasurable grace. What is grace? Alan's definition. It is divine provision whereby God provides for his own in such a way that they cannot and therefore should not take the credit. What is grace? It is divine provision whereby God provides for his own in salvation, in sanctification, for service, in succoring those who are hurting, and in sacrificial giving. I find grace connected to all five of those in the New Testament. Divine provision whereby God provides for his own in such a way that they cannot and therefore should not take the credit. We see that in salvation, don't we? For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Divine provision that God gets the credit for. God does that in service. God does that for sanctification. God does that when I help others. God does that for sacrificial giving. He is the God of all grace. And so I must not just remind myself that my God can. I must remind myself that my God will. You see, sometimes I know he can. And I think he'll do it for the pastor. He'll do it for those missionaries. He'll do it for some great Christian. But I'm not sure he would do it for me. Friends, Peter says that God, your God, is your God of all grace. Your God will. And it may not be exactly the way you wanted it to be. Because we all pray, God, take it away. And God said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. Then thirdly, we must remind ourselves of his intimate care. Who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself, notice, restore. The word is to perfect. And I believe he describes what that work looks like in the next three words. Confirm, strengthen, and establish. And they're exactly the opposite of the destabilizing work of the roaring lion. He does exactly in the battlefield of life the opposite of what Satan is looking to do. He actually is going to perfect you by bringing to your heart a spiritual stability as you rest in his word and his plan. So notice, if you will, what Peter says. He points out the person of sanctification, the God of all grace, the promise of sanctification who has called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, the process of sanctification. After that, you have suffered a little while and the product of sanctification make you perfect. Simple message. In order for us to become more like Jesus as we live in a world like this, We must recognize that we have an adversary. We must wake up and be aware 
and build ourselves up in the faith to resist him because we must recognize our circumstances. Life is filled with challenges, but God is working in every one of them. And it must ultimately call our attention to recognize our God. He can and he will in his way. So I ask you this question, looking at your life, looking at your responses to this life, are you angry? Are you fearful? If so, who are you listening to? I challenge us with Peter this morning. Let's rightly recognize our God and allow him through life circumstances to make us like his son. Let's pray. Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your persistent, loving work in our lives. And God, I pray that as a potter molding clay, Lord, that you would mold our hearts Make them malleable and shape us like your son. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.